morning. Matthew chapter 13, we're um, jumping right back in, right where we left off. And it's a significant passage of Scripture. Uh, because if you'll remember, uh, with the parable of the soils, Jesus started to tell his disciples and to talk to us about the kingdom of heaven, about the kingdom of God. And so it's important for us to recall that and to remember that as we're jumping back in. And um, this particular topic over the next few parables here in Matthew 13 is going to take us two weeks to cover. And so we're going we're gonna to start today and then we're going we're gonna to finish it up next week uh, just on this particular little two-part thing on the kingdom of God. And so um, when Jesus was born, he ushered in this new season of the kingdom of God. This particular season of the kingdom wasn't described by the prophets in the Old Testament. It it wasn't uh, proclaimed and then anticipated. And so it comes as new news to the disciples. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the things that he is saying are new to the disciples. It's not a bunch of familiar things that they're used to hearing. Fortunately for us, we have the words of Christ and the teachings of the Apostle Paul, uh, which is particularly good news for us because we are now living in this, still living in this season of the kingdom of God here on earth. So Matthew 13 starts off with Jesus talking about this, this mysterious, what was to the disciples, this mysterious kingdom of God, this kingdom that they didn't understand. And Jesus tells us seven parables to help us understand this new season that he is ushering in. Jesus is saying, things are going to be much different than what you think. He's been saying that a little bit all along in his ministry to the disciples. And in a nutshell, these are the things that he keeps repeating. This is what's different about this new kingdom. God is no longer unapproachable. People can be made right with God. Okay, that, that's new news. God, the second thing is that God is now using spirit-filled people to build his kingdom. And he's using spirit-filled people to do the work of his kingdom. Now, the disciples, like I said, didn't see this coming. The disciples thought that when the Messiah arrived, he would immediately establish a physical kingdom here on earth. And that immediately, right when the Messiah was identified, he was supposed to uh, clean house, right? Destroy the unbelievers. That there would be this, this kingdom of righteousness and holiness, and it would immediately fill the earth. All unbelievers and naysayers would be pushed out and destroyed. They thought that the kingdom would be as it was predicted to be by the prophets in the Old Testament. And so they were very interested to see this kingdom of God come in power. And over and over again, we hear that coming out of the disciples. Even after Jesus dies on the cross, they're still talking about this kingdom. They're still saying, when is he going to come in power? When is that going to happen? And to be fair, Jesus spoke to the disciples about the kingdom of God a lot, right? Throughout his ministry on earth. And then after his crucifixion, when he came back, he still was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. And so in Acts chapter 1, it's to the point where the disciples now, this is, they're talking to Jesus after he's risen from the dead. They say this in verse 6. Since they've come together and they were asking him, saying, Lord, 
Is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? They're like, is it time yet? Are you going to get nuts on the Romans now? Is this, is this when you're going to come and clean house? Because from the beginning, God's people, they'd been all about this promised land, this land that God had given to them. God had identified a huge patch of land and said, this is, my, this is where you're to live. My people are going to live in this land. And here they are living in that land, but they're under not just Roman occupation, but they're under Roman control. They're under Roman persecution. And so they've been following this Messiah and all along waiting, waiting for this Messiah to give them back this land. They were getting a little antsy. <laughs> they wanted to see the kingdom come. They didn't understand what was going on. And so Jesus, out of the kindness of his heart, wanting his disciples to understand, wanting the church, wanting us to understand, starts talking about his kingdom and starts describing his kingdom. And he does it by using parables, by speaking in parables, just simple stories that tell a uh, spiritual concept. The first parable was the last thing that Britt did a four-week series on the parable of the soils. That's Jesus' first parable in talking about the kingdom of God. He talks about this farmer that's spreading seed, and some of the seed goes on hard ground, and none of it can penetrate so it doesn't grow there. And as he's spreading the seed, some of it goes on the rocky soil, right? The the seed kind of goes down a little bit, and it may have sprung up, but it dies. Ultimately, it dies out because there's there's no depth in the rocky soil. The rocky soil is very shallow. And as he's sowing the seed, some of it goes out onto the thorny soil where there's weeds. And he says it starts to grow, but then it gets choked out because that soil is for weeds. The weeds have occupied all the possible space where roots can be. So that's, nothing grows there. And then there's the fourth soil. And finally, there's the good soil where there will be real fruit. And see, in the parable of the soils, Jesus is saying an amazing thing about the kingdom. And this would have been new news to the disciples. He's saying in the kingdom there's four soils. He's saying not everybody believes. Not everybody is genuine. Not everybody is bearing the fruit of righteousness. This would have been confusing to the disciples, they'd never heard of such a kingdom. Such a kingdom where there, there are unbelieving people, there's hard-hearted people on earth. After the Messiah comes, that wasn't what was supposed to happen. So this is the stage that's set for our passage today. Jesus is continuing to tell us about his kingdom. His kingdom may not be what we expect either. And so let's take a look. We're in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 24 reading from the New American Standard Version today. Hear the word of God. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But when his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them 
but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took, and he sowed into his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds, and he went to the house, And his disciples came to him and they said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And Jesus said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And as far as the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, all those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in his kingdom of of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these parables. We pray now, God, that you would open our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of your scripture. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us and lead us, that you would convict us, mature us, that Christ, that we might know you more and glorify you more. As a result, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so those were three parables, three stories that Jesus told the disciples and wants us to hear so that we can understand the kingdom of God. Now, those stories fly in the face of our culture in many ways. Our culture values strength. And in that strength, we value efficiency, results. We're we're very strength-oriented and strength-minded. We want immediate results. I want immediate results. I'm I'm a son of our culture in that way. I don't like to wait for things. I find myself getting even more impatient to... Uh, much to my disgrace, as I get older too, I really have to check myself. Right now, we're thinking about selling our house. We're actually taking steps to sell our house, wanting to move someplace that actually can fit our whole family indoors. And um, as we've been thinking about, as we've been thinking about the things that we need to do to prepare our house for sale, it's overwhelming. I've got this list, you know, and there's of course a cost associated with everything, time, and all this. And I'm like, man, I, some days I would, I would rather burn my house down than do this work, you know? And I'm, I, it's like, and I hate that about myself. It's like I just go cross-eyed when I, when I look at that. I'm so impatient. I just want results so quickly. I don't want to go through that process. 
Uh, so I'm, in, a, in a lot of ways, I'm a, I'm a son of our culture with my impatience toward things. And I, f- I see this in my life in other areas as well, and I realize that often we take the world's values sometimes and we bring them into the church. We take the world's values for strength and immediate results, and we bring that into our faith and into our expectations with one another in, in Christian fellowship. The world values strength. Nobody in the world wants to watch the 28th best boxer fight the 32nd best boxer, right? Nobody even knows who those people are. Nobody cares. And see, many Christians are enamored in much in the same way by how big a church is or how fast a church is growing. And, and we know that, that our Christian culture thinks this way and, and likes that train of thought because if you look at Christian magazines, that's what's on the cover of them all, right? How to grow your church massive in six months or how so-and-so got his church to be 25 campuses or how, you know, that we take these ideas and these preferences from culture and we bring them into the church. God's perspective is so different from ours. Remember Samuel in the Old Testament. Samuel comes to Jesse's house, right? And Samuel is looking for the next, or, or for the king of Israel, right? And he lines up Jesse's sons. And there they are all standing in a row. And Jesse has them, has them all ready to be inspected, except for one. He didn't bother to have David come in. Because who cares about little, young, scrawny David? And he needed someone to watch his sheep anyway. And so, obviously, he wasn't going to pick David to be the king. And so he leaves him out in the field. See, God has a different idea of what strength looks like. God has a different idea of what a good leader looks like. We value strength and strategy in fact, we, we obsess over it as a culture. Remember the story of the Exodus, Moses. Imagine for a second being Moses and hearing from God and God calling him to go talk to the Pharaoh and demand the release of the Hebrews. Think about that for a second. He says, Moses, go in there and demand the release of my people. This isn't a negotiation, this isn't a clever strategy. It's not, he didn't give him this efficient list of, of talking points to go back and forth with. Moses was to demand the release of these people. And then once that supernaturally happens, then Moses is to lead these three million people through the wilderness without planning, without equipping, right? They didn't stop off at REI to get all the stuff they need. It was like straight out to the wilderness with, with people that couldn't walk. With the older generation, the, the babies, everything in between, the animals, and out they go. And Moses is like, guess I'm doing this now, right? Remember how the Egyptians caught up with them at the Red Sea? Who planned that? Remember how there, there was no food and everyone's complaining? Remember how it took 40 years? See, God has a different strategy. God has different ideas about the value of strength and strategy in his kingdom. And as people, as a culture, we try to preserve health and life at all costs. But over and over again in the New Testament, we see God putting a higher value on suffering and death and pain. Just look at Jesus' priorities when he lived on earth. He was a self-proclaimed homeless person. Jesus was never in the housing market, right? 
was never looking in that way, never even thinking that way. His priorities were different. Look at how we're supposed to live the Christian life. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. In our passage today, Jesus is showing us what his kingdom looks like, and he's also showing us some of his different values, some of his, uh, like, kingdom values. And some of this may seem frustrating to us because it frustrates our desire for strategy. It frustrates our desire for strength. It frustrates our desire for victorious living, which is like this big catchphrase in Christian culture. Well, Jesus' vocabulary about his kingdom of God upsets this idea of victorious living that, that many of us have. Jesus doesn't do things the way I may want them to be done. And listen, brothers and sisters, this is a good thing. It's good that Jesus thinks differently about these things. And so there's seven parables in Matthew 13. We're going to go through three of those three of them today. And there's two main points that we see in, in these three parables. There's two main points. The first one is that Jesus is patient with his enemies. Jesus is patient with his enemies. The second thing we see in these parables today is that Jesus is patiently building his kingdom. He's not in a hurry. And so the first parable, the tares among the wheat, or the weeds among the wheat. This is verses 24 through 30. Again, Jesus uh, is talking about a farmer planting, right? Planting wheat in this case. And his enemy comes and he plants weeds in the same field. Now, uh, just in every commentary, they'll tell you about this weed that, that, that uh, Jesus is talking about. It's called a, a darnel, and it looks exactly like a wheat in every way until the wheat bears fruit. Then you can tell the two apart because the weed doesn't bear the same fruit, right? And so uh, up until that point of harvest, you can't tell the difference between the two. Now, I don't know if that's something that people did back then, but that is a low blow, right? To, to overseed someone's field with a bunch of weeds like that. How is someone supposed to pull the weeds out without trampling the young wheat, especially if you can't tell them apart? Jesus, the farmer in this story, has the answer, the solution to that. He's like, here's what's going to benefit the crop. This this is what's going to yield the best harvest. This is what my kingdom's like. Here's what we're going to do. There's a bunch of seeds, a bunch of weed seeds that have been sown in on top of the wheat that I've planted in this world. Look at what he says. Allow both to grow together. Yeah, Jesus is so patient, isn't he? He's saying, allow the enemies to grow together. I hate weeds growing in my yard. And those are just like little weeds. We're talking about enemies of God. We're talking about the people that were hurling insults at Jesus as he hung on the cross. Instead of the love that Jesus has for his enemies, he's saying, let them grow together. Let them grow. Jesus allows them to grow together. And thank God he does this. He does this because I was born a tear. I wasn't born a shaft of wheat. I have a tendency to just always think of myself in, term, myself in terms of, of being this, this beautiful, fruitful, desirous shaft of wheat. But I'll be honest with you. I was a weed in the church for a long time. And thank God he let me grow. I memorized scripture as a weed. I went on missions trips as a weed. 
I got loved on by people as a weed in the church. And I remember the day that the lights came on when I changed, right? You guys remember that day? Well, you're no longer the same person anymore. And now I wake up in the morning and I am so thankful that God let me grow among the wheat in the church. So thankful for that. Isn't that amazingly kind of him? He could have pulled me out. God can tell the difference. I may not be able to. You may not be able to. But God can tell the difference. He doesn't. He allows us to grow together. It's an act of grace. It's an act of kindness. So many Christians ask, why does God take so long? Look at the world. Look at what they're doing over on the other side of the globe. Look at what this political party is saying. Look what they're doing to the economy. Look what they're doing in the public schools. And we'd like just, just tear down the world. Tear, it's like, well, gosh, man, look at this ancient story that Jesus told. It's not a big surprise to us that there are weeds in the world, right? We shouldn't be surprised by that. God's not taking so long. People say, why, don't God, why doesn't God just burn away the weeds right now? Why? Because God loves his enemies. That's why. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 9, he says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. St. Augustine, in ancient times, said this. He said, What is a tear today? Maybe wheat tomorrow. <laughs> How's that for perspective? What's a weed today might be what's a weed today might be wheat wheat tomorrow. Now there are some weeds probably in our church. For sure, there's a lot of wheat in our church, but there, there might be some weeds. There might be some some versions of me, the, my former self in this church, people that, that look like Christians and know the right vocabulary and were born into the right family to look just like wheat as we grow. And God says, let them grow. Why doesn't God just purify the church and get rid of all the divisive people or the lukewarm people or the questioning people? Because there are still people whom God wants to reach and save. And the act of uprooting every single weed is destructive to the wheat field. It's not even good for the wheat to do that. Weeding the field too soon would undermine God's love. It would undermine God's grace toward his enemies. Weeding the field right now is not God's plan for his kingdom. See, that's, that's hard for me to hear as an impatient person, right? But listen, there's still the commands to confront sin and to confront heresy in the church, okay? That doesn't, like, override those commands. We still need to be on our guard for proper doctrine. But the church is not supposed to be a sin-sniffing club, right? We're not supposed to be critiquing one another. We're not supposed to carry with us a critical spirit. Well, look at how so-and-so, look at who, did you hear this? He listens to this kind of music. Do you know about this about him? That's, that's not what the church is supposed to look like. See, there's something important for us to know about letting the tares grow in culture and in the church. There's something important for us there. Yeah, we got to confront heresy. Yes, we need to confront sin. But at the same time, it's significant, Christian, for us to hear today. Jesus says, let them grow. It's important to see that it's the will of God for his kingdom. 
See, I'd rather see God's kingdom be powerful and strong and rip out the the weeds because I'm impatient, because I'm short-sighted. And I'm a lot like the disciples were. There's a story where Jesus went to go uh, speak to the Samaritans, another culture, and um, he gets rejected. He's totally rebuffed by the Samaritans. Luke chapter 9, we find this story, and it says, starting in verse 53, it says, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and he said, you don't even know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Isn't that an amazing exchange there? He's like, who, who are you right now? Jesus is saying to his disciples, you so don't get it. Inside and outside the church, there are some valuable lessons that I can apply to my heart from this parable. I tend to pray for justice. I want justice to be served. But I find more and more as I've been meditating on these words of Jesus, Jesus would have me pray for grace more often. I tend to aggressively defend myself and defend the church. And Jesus would have me let down my guard a little and just love others more. Jesus' kingdom is about people seeing Jesus in his people. And it's hard because church can be messy. Because relationships are messy. Because people are messy, right? We're all growing together. We're a family. And like a family, we stick it out through hard times. Just like a family, we don't run away, right? When I offend my younger brother or my siblings, right? Which rarely happens. No, I'm just kidding. But but they don't just run away, right? We don't stop being family. We find a way to work it out. And we stick it out. We don't run away and and take the siblings that we like with us and just go somewhere else. This is why it's so difficult when disgruntled people hop from church to church. Because we take our messes with us, right? We want to exchange some strained relationships in one church. Well, guess what? You're going to just exchange them eventually for strained relationships in another church. Because people are messy, right? Right? Relationships are messy. There's weeds in the church. Healthy churches aren't the result of disgruntled people coming together and fixing the church. That doesn't make a healthy church. Healthy churches are full of people who love Jesus and love one another. Second parable is the parable of the mustard seed. We see this in Matthew 13, starting in verse 31. This kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is like a mustard seed. Okay? It starts pretty small. <laughs> it's the smallest seed in the garden, Jesus says. See, in Jesus' economy, in his kingdom, weakness is okay. It's okay with God that there's weakness. God seems to identify with the small things. God's not as enamored with strength as we are. He's not as fixated on the strength of man or the strength of his people. He doesn't think about it in the same way as we do. Remember how Jesus started off here on earth. Jesus came to earth, the living God, the one who in John 1 said, uh, John 1, 1 says that Jesus literally spoke creation into existence. The mouthpiece of the creator comes to earth, and he comes to earth as a baby, 
totally dependent on humans to care for him. And not just, not, not just any human, not some of you amazing, you know, empty nesters that have raised kids and all of that. No, he came to this young, unmarried couple in, in kind of like scandalous situation. They're poor. They're not wealthy. They, they couldn't just go back home because they were sort of being hunted after because the timing of Jesus' birth. He was born into a marginalized setting in a very weak lowly place. Jesus didn't come to earth as a massive warrior king, right? Not as a well-polished statesman. This is how God does things. Remember the story of Gideon. Gideon starts out with this massive army, tens of thousands of men. God allows it to dwindle to 300 before he gives them the victory. See, God isn't impressed with the strength of men. Weakness is important to God. There's something valuable for us to learn about God's affinity for weakness in his kingdom. A picture, picture with me for a moment. Just, just think about Jesus and his ministry and everything he did, his full life here on earth, to the extent that you're aware of the things that he did. And think, think for a moment and try to pinpoint his strongest point. What was Jesus' strongest point in his ministry? I would argue that Jesus' strongest point, the point where he was most powerful in his ministry, was when he was buck naked, having been brutally beaten, spit upon, cursed at, with a crown of thorns shoved on his head, mercilessly taunted and insulted by these evil, wicked men, nailed to a cross and taunted. And it is at that moment, at that moment, where Jesus himself, as, a, as God-man, gives his life for us because no one could take it away from him. At that moment, where Jesus is able to literally lay down his own life for the church, for the glory of the Father, at that moment, Jesus was at the strongest point of his ministry. That's the apex of Jesus' ministry. He's saying, look at this. I'm about to conquer sin, death, and the devil in one act right now. Jesus' entire ministry, in fact, was an operation that worked on the margins of society. He wasn't this big mainstream teacher. He wasn't easy to follow. Jesus ministered to scandalous people, the, out, the marginalized. And he loved them and ministered them in scandalous ways. A rabbi coming to the house of a tax collector, hanging out with prostitutes. It, it's just, it was absurd, the things that he did and said in that culture. There were times in Jesus' ministry where many people would follow him. It would say the crowds were immense. Huge crowds. And when the crowd would get really big, it just seems like at that moment, Jesus would go and say something radical about the cost of following him. Or something crazy about his kingdom. And then the next day, he'd wake up and it'd be like, oh, it's just you 12 again, huh? Let's go. Let's, let's keep going. And the disciples were like, gosh, Jesus, don't you think you could take the edge off a little bit? You know? They didn't understand his kingdom. They didn't understand why he came. And by the way, the 12 men that Jesus chose to spend his time with, they were uneducated, untrained, inexperienced, and they were totally ignorant of Jesus' plans, his entire ministry, right? Peter's squealing and running away. You know, there is around the fire when a little girl says, hey, weren't you with Jesus? You know, at the very end, they just, they, they never got it. 
like Jesus, the church, in some ways, should operate on the margins. Our goal shouldn't be to become this big mainstream thing. We find our strength on the margins where Jesus' ministry found his strength. The church may not always look strong. That may not be God's plan for his church, is to appear to the world to be this strong, well-polished organization. Back to Moses. This is another awesome picture to, to have in your mind right now. Think about Moses leading Israel out, out of Egypt, right? Just think about him for a second. Do you have a picture of Moses in your head? Mine's awesome. My picture of Moses is Charlton Heston, right? <laughs> and like Moses never wore a shirt in my mind. You know, he's just this just polished chest, you know. And then like later in life in that movie, um, it's the same guy, right? He's still like 30 years old and he's still just like shredded. But he's got this like just beautiful beard and this beautiful gray hair and he's all buff, you know, and he's just, you know, he's got that Charlton Heston stare, you know, with that twitching eye. That's how I think of Moses. Because that's how our culture has shown me Moses. Because that's what our culture thinks about strong leaders, right? Only a strong leader would go in and shrewdly negotiate the release of the, you know, Hebrew people the way Moses did. Listen, that is not who Moses was. Moses was an 80-year-old man when God called him. God called him from a place. He was out living in the wilderness, way out in the desert, herding sheep, running from the government, hiding. Talk about someone who's living in the margins of society. God picks this washed-up, just desert freak to rescue his people. He goes way outside the margins of society, out into the desert, right? Imagine that. That's who God picks to rescue his people. That's the hero of that story, this 80-year-old man living in this radically marginalized setting. God identifies with the meek and the marginalized. He reaches out to the meek and the marginalized. God makes heroes of the meek and the marginalized. God's kingdom is like a mustard seed. The most obvious characteristic of the church should be its weakness apart from God and its complete dependence upon God. The most obvious characteristic of the church. If we're going to try to make something obvious, it should be our complete weakness apart from God and our complete dependence upon God. We never in and of ourselves want to appear strong. God is strong. God is our strength. This is when we're at our best. But I'll confess to you, I'll be honest with you, as a Christian, I get tired, and I don't feel strong. I feel weak. It's hard for me to imagine being the guy that God would pick to do anything. I don't feel like a conqueror for Christ. There's a passage I love from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66. Verse 2, God says this. God says, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts and who tremble at my word. I've been in a season of mourning. It's been tough. I can't control my, I'm emotionally immature to start with. And then to lose my dad and, you know, to have been gotten so close to him toward the end, it has been tough for me. 
right before I came up on stage, I was telling my friend Josiah over here, I mean, I was like weeping during the last song because it was, you know, about God being our father, not even having to do with my, it had the word father in it, I think, you know, and it's like, gosh, I'm so like broken and so weak right now. And I praise God for that because in this moment, this moment of clarity now, God put me in this place to study this particular passage. I trust that there's something good and something valuable, something worth hearing. Because in our weakness, God's strength is more obvious. Our dependence on God only makes God more big, more beautiful, makes God the hero of the story. We are a part of this mustard seed kingdom. Strength is not what we expect it to be. The third parable is the parable of the leaven, which is yeast. And this is Matthew 13, starts in verse 33. The more I read this parable and meditated on this parable, the more I kept feeling this parable is really about the kingdom of God is almost strategically not strategic. (laughs) Here again, Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven, right? This kingdom of heaven that, that comes down to earth. Jesus is comparing it to this ordinary, ridiculously small, common thing. We don't think about yeast and we don't get blown away by how our bread rises, right? Because it's such an ordinary thing in our life. But Jesus picks that. My kingdom's like that that little thing that you don't ever think about, right? It's like his mustard seed that you may not have even known, you know, by the way, that it's small. See, this kingdom-building strategy, from our cultural perspective, with, with our modern cultural mind, it's insane, these things that Jesus is saying. Jesus's kingdom will affect culture like yeast affects dough, is what Jesus is saying. And it's like this important lesson to learn. Well, like, how exactly is that, you know? And as we were meeting and talking and and praying through this today, uh, or this last week with the uh, the team of teachers that's teaching now, someone said that yeast affects bread flour the way it does because it's yeast. (laughs) Yeast does what it does When it's activated as a part of flour, because it is yeast. Yeast isn't trying to be effective. It's not thinking or trying to do anything. It just does what it does because it is what it is, right? Now, similarly, Christians, someone who's been saved by the grace of God, through the atoning work of the cross of Jesus Christ and been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. We do what we do in the world around us because we're Christians. We don't have to try harder. Christians do what we do because we are who we are. We are who God has made us to be. We are who God has empowered us to be. And we just need to be that and be available. Tim Keller pastor from New York City said this. He said, the more you understand how your salvation is not about your behavior, the more radically your behavior will change. I love that quote. Basically, he's saying, stop trying to be better. Just be. Be who God has created you to be. Be with Jesus. Be a worshiper. There's something fundamentally different about someone after they have become a Christian. I, I alluded very briefly to myself 
earlier on. That's, it, that, that's exactly what happened to me. I just, I changed. I was in worship one day and I started crying and I, I had this encounter with God and I just, I can't wake up in the morning and live my life apart from God. I won't do it. My, my identity is completely and totally reliant on who God is. I'm a different person than I was before I had that encounter, before I had that change happen in my life. It's like the way yeast affects a lump of dough. It just does. See, Christians change the world around them simply by being Christians. There's no art of the deal book for Christians, right? God prefers weakness in his people. Weakness has this ability to help us realize our need for God. And this is why the Apostle Paul said that he rejoiced in his weakness. It's this crazy statement. I remember as a kid learning about this in Sunday school. I'm like, what an idiot. Who rejoices in their weakness, right? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Lord said to the the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, some of us in here today, some of us might need to rethink the value of weakness. Some of us may need to rethink the way we evaluate success in life. What what does success mean? See, weakness and failure help us, help me. Brokenness helps me see God rightly. Strength and steady victory over time tend to breed in me a pride. Now, I'm a... I'm a smart person, self-professed smart person, so I'm too smart to allow that pride to be big and open and obvious, but it's there. I become a prideful man. When I, when I make too many good decisions in a row by the grace of God, even when I know it's the grace of God, right, I get really proud of myself. And then what do I do? You guys know the story, right? You guys know me, right? What do I do at that point? I stop relying on God because Well, shoot, look what I just did. I'm pretty good here, right? See, the more victory I experience in my life in that way, the more I tend to drift away from God. But it's in these seasons of brokenness. It's in these low places in life where God has me crying out. God has me actually declaring with my mouth my need for him. Now, I know there's all kinds of, you know, ways that Christian Christians like to, you know, metaphorically cry out to God, right? But the Bible's not real big on those metaphorical cries out to God. The Bible actually talks about literal crying out to God. And it's really in those low, weak, broken places. Those are the only parts of my life where, I, where I'm just like, man, I have to cry out to God right now. I have. There's no, what else am I going to do? But how often... Do we resent weakness in our life? Man, I hate weakness in my life. I resent the very thing that brings me closer to God. 
I resent the very thing that helps me understand who God is and understand who I am better. We hate weakness, don't we? But it's only in my times of weakness that God is all that I need. And sometimes I'm so spiritually weak and I feel so spiritually low. Man, it's really hard for me to read the Word of God. I can't even, I can't even read the Bible. I, I just, I, I know I need to, but I just, I just find myself in a low point. Sometimes I feel so drained, I don't even want to pray or meditate. I, I know I should. I know that's the right response. But see, it's in times like those when I'm that broken and only in times like these that I literally voice my need for God. Where I say, God, I need you today. I mean, I literally need you right now. Right? And God's going, yeah, I know, Billy. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So three parables. God is not... God's kingdom is not like any kingdom that any man would construct. God is doing something that humans would never do. Humans could never do. God's kingdom reflects God's love and God's patience. God is a loving, patient kingdom builder. See, God takes broken people. He takes messes of people. And he fills us with power. And he fills us with hope. And he gives us purpose. God does all of that. Not because I'm strong, but because he has allowed me to see my need for him. So God's kingdom is a place where we're with God. And we're reminded of our need for God. That's what marks the people of God. We're a people who are with God. And we're reminded of, and we remind each other of, our need for God. And today, some of us maybe need to refocus our mindset. Maybe, maybe someone in here thinks too much about strength, thinks too much about being strong. And God would say to you today, Man, I love you, but my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Some of us may think too much about success or being successful or worried that we're not successful. Remember the story of Moses. God picked an utterly unsuccessful person to be the hero of that story. Man, some of us just need to remember that suffering pushes us into the arms of God. My little two-year-old son that keeps me awake half the night now because he's so into daddy, which is amazing. But he wants to be so close that it's like he wants to feel my breath like on the side of his head. You know, right when I start to fall asleep, I'll feel his little fat little hand just touch me, you know. He's just like, "Eh, I got you, you know. And in these last few weeks... I've felt like that with God. I've needed to like, where are you? You know? Okay, there you are. Good. I, I, wanna, I just want to be a little closer. I want to I feel your breath on me. I want to I know that I'm where I'm supposed to be. I, I want to be in the place where, where a son sits at the table, right? I don't want to be, I don't want to choose the seat of a guest, which is far away from God. I, I want to be up. I want to be a part of the kingdom, right? I, I want to be where family sits at a meal. See, God has saved us to know him and enjoy him, first and foremost. Before you get to use your amazing gifts, before you get to to do those amazing things for God that you feel called to do, 
God has saved you to know him and enjoy him. And listen, that God above all else is to be your source of strength and to be your greatest joy. So this morning, let's take our minds and our hearts off of our desires, off of our goals, off of our strengths, off of the things we want to do, off of the things we feel called to do, these, these good things that we get obsessed with. Let's get our minds and our hearts off of all of those things. Let's put our minds and our hearts on Jesus, the joy-giving object of God's kingdom. God's kingdom does not make any sense unless you are infatuated with and enamored with Jesus Christ. Jesus is what makes the kingdom of God good. Jesus is our prize. Jesus' perfect performance in life is our birthright as sons and daughters of the kingdom. His strength is our strength. As we worship this morning, let's respond to that truth, that God has called you as a son or a daughter, that God has called you where you are today, weak, suffering, low. Maybe you're puffed up, and God right now is about to just, you know, like Jenga, like pull that one thing out right now and bring you to, a, to the best season of your life where you recognize your dependence on him. It's in that moment when you're going to discover what you were created for. And that's worship. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word and thank you for your kingdom. God, that who are we to know anything about your kingdom? It's so different than anything that we would build. But even just using the way you describe your kingdom, God, you've convicted and done such a deep work in me. I pray now as a church, God, that you would lead us to a place of repentance, lead us to a place of worship, lead us to a low place, God, where you are made high and exalted and big and obvious and beautiful. I pray, God, that you would meet with those who maybe are young in the faith, maybe some of those who stood up last week and they've come back this week wondering, well, what do I do next? God, meet with us. We want to touch you. We want to know you're near. We want to feel your breath. We want to know that we are in your very near presence, God. We trust you for that, God. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that leads us in these things. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.